Father God, we thank you so much for your greatness that you have everything within your sight, everything within your realm, everything within your control. Sometimes we have drifted and sometimes we don't see that, but God, we trust that you are great and you have everything. And so we praise you. We praise you in the hard times. We praise you in the difficult times, knowing that you are the one who renews. You are the one who restores. You are the one who lifts us up. And God, we thank you for that in advance. Even when we don't see it immediately, God, we see you. And we give thanks for you. Be with us now. Come to us now by the presence of your spirit and by the working of your word and the washing of your word and draw us near to your heart. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm excited, and you know why. Because we're beginning a new series, and I'm always excited when we begin a new study, a new season of study. And uh, our series is called Building Back Boulder. I'm real excited about looking at a part of Scripture Um, that it's kind of back in the clean pages of the Bible. You may not have marked these up very much. Uh, But we're going to be looking in this series at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, why are we looking at two books together? These are the 15th and the 16th books of of our Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, they were one. These were always one. It it was Ezra and Nehemiah, and and it was uh, one continuous uh, piece of Hebrew literature for us in in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, And they deal, and one of the reasons for like dealing with all this together, not just doing one and walking away, is that uh, both of these books in our Bible deal with a really important question. And that question is, how do you build back after destruction? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to be talking about destruction and, and, and what, what was going on. That, this is what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. Uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple uh, were destroyed. They're destroyed a couple of times in history. But the first time, the, the great temple, the great temple of Solomon was destroyed uh, in 586 B.C., and uh, it's recorded in 2 Kings 25, and you can read through that at some point if you want a lot of the detail. It was a horrible final uh, defeat of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and then they were carried away. So you might say, well, this is just another piece of ancient history, a sad part of history. Pastor Jeff, why would we focus so much on this? Um, and the reason is, and I want us to connect uh, is that uh, there are a lot of different kinds of destruction. We're going to be looking at this moment uh, of destruction, but we see destruction, don't we? I mean, this is a picture of destruction in Lebanon. And, but you could go to many parts of the world today and see a picture like this. Ukraine, there's been ter- terrible destruction in Ukraine. Uh, and we see the destruction of war. And that's what we're talking about in this part of the Bible. But we also see the destruction that comes from natural disaster, hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires and earthquakes and volcanoes and mudslides. I mean, we see this in the news and and we we look at it and we go, my goodness, how are we going to clean this mess up? That's what I think of when I see a picture like this. Do you think this? 
How are we going to clean this mess up? We can barely fill the potholes a lot of times in our communities, but this is a big, big mess, isn't it? And the truth is that we also experience other kinds of destruction, uh, the destructions of life, uh, where because something happens uh, with our job or our family or career or health or business or our community or our economy, we find ourselves in a place where we feel like there's been a destruction and we, we are not sure we'll ever get back. We're not sure how we can get back from that. The word destruction, and it appears in the Bible, but uh, it's just a simple word in Hebrew. But the word destruction, as we use it, comes from a Latin root, uh, meaning a pulling down. It, it makes sense. To, to destruct is to destructure. So to, de- to destructure or pull down the structures that have been built up. The things that have been built up are now pulled down. And, and we can also think about it in terms of the pulling down of life as we have known it. The things that we once depended on are now pulled down. And this happens sometimes. And that is exactly what faced the Jewish people in 586 B.C. Now, uh, I always like for us to know where we are in history and where we are in the Bible So at the end of your app notes and also the online notes uh, that are on our webpage, uh, you'll find a short uh, timeline of history that tells us a little bit about what from Abraham up to this point. It's not everything, but it'll kind of show you where we are. I know some of you are history people and I know that I am. I like to know where I am and what's going on. But this destruction um, did not happen all at once. It wasn't a one day deal. Uh, The Assyrians had conquered and scattered the northern kingdom. Uh, It was called the kingdom of Israel. Northern kingdom was the northern ten tribes. You remember they had separated. So there were two tribes in the south called Judah and then ten tribes in in the north. And they were attacked and scattered in 722 B.C. These are really good dates in case you're ever on jeopardy. You know, you'll, you'll know the answers. Now, Assyria is not the same as Syria. Uh, Assyria was much larger uh, and actually included parts of modern-day Iraq and Iran and Kuwait and Syria and Turkey. It was a huge entity in 722 B.C. And they came in, and, and what they did was really quite horrible. They took half of the people... And they scattered them. They, they planted them in other places they had conquered and forced them to intermarry there. Then they took people from all these other places and moved them into uh, that northern uh, tribe area and forced them to intermarry. Uh, a way that that's described is ethnic cleansing. We're going to make you no longer a people. You won't. You won't be a problem if you have no religious identity, no ethnic identity, if you have no historical identity, if you don't know who you are anymore and you're just mixed with other people. It's a horrible thing to do. But that's what they did in the ancient world and sometimes has been done in the modern world. We talk about that northern kingdom as the ten lost tribes. They weren't really lost. They were scattered. And many of them held on to their identity in the different places that they went and then that mixture that happened there in the, in, in the land 
uh, was in the area of Samaria, and so they became the Samaritans. Why is this important? Well, when you get in the New Testament, you just give me some Jesus. Jesus talked about this. You remember uh, when he talked about the Samaritans, when he talked about the Good Samaritan. This, this is the history that he was relating to. The Samaritan people became a hated people, a despised people. Why? Just because they were a mixture. You're, you're not pure. And so we're, uh, we're going to reject you. And that, that's what was going on. Well, 136 years later, destruction comes again in the south. And why was all this going on? We studied this when we looked at the minor prophets, how again and again, God said, y'all need to straighten up. I, you, you need to repent. You need to set aside the idols, the idolatry that you've allowed to creep in. You, you're dealing with people in unjust ways. And there's a judgment that's going to come if you don't straighten up. So there was a lot of warning. And finally, this was actually, we say the Assyrians did this. God did this. God used these other nations to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. And and that's the part of history that we're looking at here. The final destruction came to in the south uh, in Judah in 586 BC. Those two dates will get you points on jeopardy someday, okay? Um, 586 BC is a really, really big date in Jewish history, in biblical history, in our history. And the Babylonians, uh, they, they reduced the temple. And we say, well, the temple. What temple? Oh, my goodness. This is the temple of Solomon. This is the, the temple. This is a wonder of the ancient world. People came from all over the world just to look at it. It was so magnificent and huge. And it was a, it was a monumental uh, construction. And they came to pull that down and reduce it to rubble. They burned everything in the city. Uh, they carried away, there's descriptions of carrying away tons and tons of bronze and silver and gold. Uh, there were pillars in the temple so heavy that they couldn't even be measured. They said of an unmeasurable amount of weight, they carried away bronze uh, from, the, from the pillars in the temple. And everything was burned. The gold, the silver, the bronze was all hauled away. And the remaining Jews that were left, and these were the tribes, what was left of the tribes of Judah and and Benjamin, were deported. They were exiled to Babylon. And so this is what we call the Babylonian exile, or simply the exile. That's really important because there are two events in Jewish history that are watershed events. One is the exodus. The, both start with EX, okay? The exodus and the exile are the huge things that happen uh, in the history uh, of the Jewish people. Uh, by watershed event, uh, we would say it means everything's different. Everything flows in a different direction after the exile. It's a marker in time. So these, uh, in fact, the biblical materials, if you read them, they're often called by a term pre-exilic. It's a divider in time or post-exilic. This is what it's talking about. It's as important as when we say B.C. and A.D. B.C. means what? Before Christ, yes. I know they say, oh, it means before common era. It wasn't until just a little while ago that it started being called common era. Everybody knew until the 17 and 1800s very clearly 
that, that means before Christ, because that's the beginning of the common era. A.D. means in the year of our Lord. And in the same way, biblical materials are marked pre-exilic and post-exilic in, in that matter. Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are telling us about this end of the exile, when this is going to finally come to an end, and there's going to finally be a return to Jerusalem. So this is a task that is enormous. It's huge if you think about it. How do you restore a city that has been reduced to rubble? You know, a few weeks ago, we were in Germany. I had only been through Germany, I, you know, to land and change planes. So I'd never been in Germany. And it was fast, a fascinating thing to be there and to tour around. And we were in Munich. And we were touring and seeing uh, f- fabulous, beautiful churches there. And we were seeing some amazing places, these, these uh, squares that, that where people could gather and parks and things. And we were looking at these incredible buildings, these 17th and 18th century buildings. They were beautiful. They were incredible. And we were looking at them and I you know, raised my hand and asked the guide. And I said, these are amazing. So these survived World War II. And he was quiet. And I said, all this is, is the way that it was before World War II. He said, no. All of what you see was rubble at the end of World War II from the bombing that ended the war. All of it was rubble. And I said, well, it's so amazing. It, it's, it's so magnificent. And he said, yeah, it was a lot of work to do that. In fact, they, they wanted to restore it as it was. And so it became an art form to restore buildings and make them look old. We're not just going to put up something and slap it up new. We're going to restore in a way that looks old and looks historic. It was really an amazing thing to see. How do you do that? Especially if you're trying to figure out, does anybody remember what, what the temple looked like? And there's a lot of different ideas. Does anybody remember what Jerusalem looked like in its time of grandeur? So how do you rebuild a house of worship that was destroyed? And how do you restore worship when every piece that was familiar is gone? I mean, this happens in in our time. I mean, we see where a tornado just obliterates a church. And all of a sudden the people realize, I guess that wasn't the church. So what are we going to do? And they begin, they gather. Have you, have you seen it sometimes? A tornado will come through and, and the, next, the next Sunday, the people are there. They're gathered together saying, well, we're going to worship. We don't have any of this. We don't have any of this stuff. We don't have a sound system. No PowerPoint. <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to worship because we, we've got to figure out who we are and how we're going to restore the things that were broken down, that were destructured, that were pulled down. Items of worship have been stolen away and taken away uh, during this exile. How do you put back structures that have been pulled down? How do you put them back into place? Well, it starts with something that only God could do. What do we call that? Something that only God can do. What do we call it? A miracle. Yeah. And, and we're going we're gonna to hear about a miracle today. So it started uh, 48 years after the the exile began, and there was what we call a regime change in in Babylon. Uh, That's our term for it. 
and, and there weren't any spy, uh, spies involved or anything like that, okay? But in 538, a new, king, a new king took over Babylon, and his name was Cyrus. He's a, maybe the most critical figure uh, in coming back out of exile. So let's read the scripture, Ezra chapter 1, beginning verse 1, as we hear about this amazing miracle that happened. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with gold and with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and of the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All of these Shesh Bazaar. Uh, bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Wow. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, sometimes we sing about it. Sometimes uh, we rejoice in it that you are God and, and you are sovereign and, and that you are in charge and, and you are great. But here we see it and we hear about it from your word. The things that are not beyond your reach. The people that are not outside of your care and concern and influence. And God, we pray 
that you would minister to us from this passage of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, so the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. We have this time that begins, this time of exile. Northern tribes are scattered and, and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. There's just rubble there. I, I find myself wondering, so what was going on? There were still people in the land wandering around, but Jerusalem was just um, a wreck. It was just ruins. And the last of the Jews, uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were exiled to Babylon. Just to help us understand, the reason we call this people the Jews is, is because of this. The northern tribes have been scattered, and the ones that remained, the largest one was Judah. And it's because of that that we call the, the remaining, the, the people, the survivors, the remnant, are called the Jews because of this. And so uh, to this day, before that, they were called Israelites or they were called Hebrews. So for 48 years, Judaism was in exile. We read about it. You can read the description in 2 Kings. Uh, The Hebrew word for exile is the word galah. Say that with me. Galah. You got to kind of open your mouth to say it again. Galah. Okay. And it means to go away or leave. That makes sense. To be away from where you were, to be away from home, away from where you started, away from where things were built, okay? But it's, it's a, an even more graphic word. It means to denude in a disgraceful sense, to be stripped and carried away. Now, they probably weren't stripped, stripped naked, but they were stripped of everything they owned. They left with nothing, And they were taken into this place of exile in Babylon. All their possessions were gone. But they were still the people of God. And it's an amazing thing that God used the time of exile in Babylon in a very powerful way. Jews were allowed to conduct businesses and to farm and do the things that they would normally do in Babylon. Um, there's, there's uh, a lot of evidence that they were in a very fertile area between uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers while they were there. So they, they were able to recover there and they began to, you know, get things going and, and they would grow uh, their crops and, and get their businesses going. Uh, and so they, they were growing. You know, in a lot of ways, it was similar. Do you remember how Goshen was really a good place? In Egypt, how God allowed them to be in this amazingly fertile place where they, they really thrived to the point that they grew uh, in number to two million people in Egypt. That's Goshen. In, in many ways, the, the place of exile in Babylon was similar, but they grew in different ways. It wasn't in number, but they grew in, in, in their focus and their understanding of themselves. During the exile, Judaism shifts from a temple focus to a word focus. And so we see a whole different kind of approach to God happening. Instead of focusing on, we've got to make this sacrifice, we've got to get some birds, we've got to buy some some animals, and we've got to take those, and we've got to sacrifice these things, that had been important before. Now they're focused more and more and more on Torah. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be God's people? And it it came down to, if we have 10 families and a Torah scroll, we're going to call ourselves a synagogue, a gathering of God's people. 
And they began to, to study in that way. This is the beginning of rabbinical Judaism uh, and, and synagogues. Commentaries are written in this time. The Talmud and the Mishnah are written in this time and then develop out of uh, this season of exile. And the style that we call rabbinical teaching, it's a question and answer style. Rabbi, what about this situation? And then the questions go back and forth. This develops in this time of exile. I was studying this, you know, over the past couple of months, and it occurred to me that exile really is what you make of it. Because God is at work in all things. Amen? Amen. I mean, our scripture tells us that. In all things, he is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's right here. And, and I, as I just kind of contemplated this and reflected on it, it occurred to me that exile could stand for uh, an acronym like this, an extended, zenacious, intense life education. Now, where did you get that, Pastor Jeff? I didn't see that. And what is that word in there, zenacious? I promise you I did not make it up. But it is kind of a new word. It only appears in, in uh, dictionaries in the last couple of years. But zenacious means yearning for change, eagerness to experiment, discover new things, learn and grow. And, and so why don't we read that out loud together? The extended, zenacious, intense life education. Say that with me. Extended, zenacious, intense life education. Sometimes we go through, we say, I'm in an intensive. It's a type of education. This is an extended intensive. And by zenacious, if we use it right, it can be a time where we learn. And God can use the time of exile for us to learn new things. Israel was learning a whole new way to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a a different way to worship a different way to understand nearness to God. And I really believe that God uses exile to sharpen us for what he has planned ahead, the things that that are in the future. Now, uh, this rebuilding was going to be a time that would require a lot of of change. A lot of things were going to be different. And they were going to be adjusting out of a place where they were settled uh, to go back in. And this rebuilding would be led by, uh, by several leaders. And we're going to be looking at those over the next few weeks uh, af- as they're coming out of this period called exile. Now, a lot of people would have looked and they would have said, Judaism looks to have been shattered and scattered and polluted, but God had preserved them. And he was, he was now moving them to the place where they could rebuild. Who did God use? He used, uh, he's going to use a priest named Ezra. And a builder named Zerubbabel, and he's going to use a, a civil governor named Nehemiah, and then prophets are going to speak into the time. We already studied some of those last year. Uh, Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah, they're, they're the preachers who inspire and call the people to, to give and to work and to be part of, of what's going on. But the most interesting character in all of this uh, change is this guy named Cyrus that we were reading about. So Babylon, which is modern Iraq, was conquered by the Persians, which is modern Iran. Uh, Go figure, right? 
I mean, does that conflict sound familiar? A lot of times people think, well, I'm going to go in and have a conference or a meeting and I'm going to solve the the, uh, conflicts of the Middle East. They go back thousands of years. We just need to know that. But the Persian leader uh, over the region was Cyrus II. He called himself Cyrus the Great. Uh, I think sometimes people do that. They just say, well, I'm going to give myself a new name. I'm going to call my, I promise you I'll never call myself Jeff the Great. (laughs) I won't do that. Uh, But he actually had 10 different titles that he had attached to himself. And one of them was King of Kings. And, And the reason was that he ruled over all of the previous civilized states of the ancient Near East. He had this huge area. Uh, And he was actually pretty wise. He did some really smart things if you read about him. Uh, And when he finally conquers Babylon, it's without a fight. He comes in and and they're kind of tired of conflict and they say, okay, we we give up. And he just comes in and he takes over. And and one of the very first things that he does in the first year of Cyrus when he's in uh, Babylon, he's over Babylon, is this return Cyrus allowed the Jews to return in 538 BC. He's, he's just started. So we don't know exactly. I mean, the scripture tells us, uh, you know, that, that God was stirring his heart. Uh, but he came in, and I don't know what the other people thought, uh, but he came in and he found this people uh, that are in there. He, Y'all don't belong here. You belong over there. And that's where your God is, and that's where you should worship. And so. Uh, all, all this begins to happen. Uh, and, and really, that's when hope began to rise, starting with the stirring of the heart of this pagan king. <laughs> the story of God's salvation <clears throat> was not finished. You know, we're on an ark that's moving toward Jesus. Aren't you glad it didn't stop back there? <clears throat> really, really important. And God used this unusual uh, event to, to begin restoration. Let's look at it again in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and, and listen to this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So this had been prophesied. The Lord stirred up the spirit or the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made this proclamation. And he said, the Lord, I mean, he's talking about the Lord. how how does he even know how to talk about this? The Lord, the King of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Now it says in there from the mouth of Jeremiah, what is that talking about? Uh, Mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 10, there's this prophecy and listen to it because some of it's familiar. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon in in that exile, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. That was the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now listen to the next part. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's familiar, isn't it? I bet a lot of you have it on a plaque somewhere in your home. It's one of our very favorites. It's out in the lobby of of our church here. And we we love that verse, but now you know the context of it. This is where it comes. It's part of a prophecy through Jeremiah that exile is not forever. Exile is not going to go on and on. 
after a period of time, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you back out of exile. 70 years, what is that about? If we go back and and look at the history, the first deportation of the Jews to Babylon started in 605. It was, there are a series of deportations that took place. The final one is in, uh, is in 586. And, uh, and the decree of Cyrus is 67 years later. And by the time the people returned and built the altar back in Jerusalem, it had been 70 years. It's exactly as it was prophesied. Makes you think there really is a God, doesn't it? Yeah. That he, he really knows what's going on. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. I love this word. In Hebrew, it's the word ur. Say that with me, ur. And it means to open the eyes or to wake or to awaken or to raise. I mean, this, this says that God woke up uh, Cyrus. You ever think sometimes, uh, I could name some people, I wish God would wake them up. I mean, sometimes I'm watching the news and I say, God, just wake that leader up. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I think about some of the, the conflicts. Is Putin beyond God's reach? No. So God awakened these people that are bringing about these horrible things. And Cyrus wasn't bringing about horrible things. He was going to rectify the horrible things that had been going on. And, and really, it, it had gotten pretty comfortable for them. We'll, we'll look at that uh, a little further. NIV says that God moved in the heart. ESV has stirred up the spirit. Um, and that's the same in the uh, King James. But it's amazing to think that the great mover for liberation of the Jewish people was a pagan. God stirred the heart of a pagan, not a God follower. And so the big truth that we need to get, boy, this is important. God will use who he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Why? Because he's God, and because he can And God can stir the heart of anyone that he chooses. And the Lord also then stirred up the people. He stirred up the hearts of the people. In verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's houses, the the heads of households and and the leaders there among the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites that were there, and everyone whose spirit had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God began to stir in the hearts of the people. People aren't going to do something that they aren't motivated to do. And God began to stir their hearts. And then the people began to make offerings. Verse 6, and all those who were about them aided them. So we're going to see in the next few weeks, not everybody goes back. It's really um, probably a small portion that actually goes back and starts the rebuilding. Why? Because we kind of get comfortable with things, don't we? We can get comfortable in the place of exile. We need to listen and hear that. But all those about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, uh, besides all that was freely offered. And that free offering was, was actually for the house of the Lord. And, uh, and so they began to give offerings. And then the king, we don't know if it's because he saw that and he was inspired, but the king, in verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed into the house of his gods. So he had had this whole lot of stuff, uh, the, the worship implements. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out. 
And, and he has it all counted up. And did you hear it all? I mean, 30 basins of gold and 1,000 basins of silver and on and on it goes. 5,400 pieces of gold and silver. It's not everything. Some things we don't see here, uh, you know, that we don't know what happened to them. Uh, you know, I'm going, where's, where's the Ark of the Covenant? You know, that box that you don't want to open and look into. And y- y'all do watch Indiana Jones, don't you? I just want to be sure. Yeah, it's the melt-your-face box, all right? But the, the, there are things that we don't know where they went. Maybe they were hidden away. Uh, that's one of, of these mysteries that archaeologists pursue. But the thing we do want to understand is that kings don't normally give back the bounty of their conquests. Why would you go in and have a fortune worth of stuff and say, well, y'all can have this too, since you're going. But that's exactly what Cyrus did, and that has to be a moving in in the heart by God. So listen to the order of, of what happened, of what God did. The Lord stirred up Cyrus to release the people. The Lord stirred up the people to go and to rebuild. The people, really all of them, responded by giving. So they were giving toward this. And then Cyrus brought out the vessels of the house that had been stolen, the stolen stuff. the, The order may be significant there. That is, God sees that the people are in on this. They're they're signing on. They're owning this restoration. Then those stolen items are returned. What I want to give you as we as we close. Very simple, not, not a lot of time on it, but five foundation principles for building back boulder. And the first is that God can use anyone or anything in our lives to get us where he wants us to be. We may look at someone and say, that boss is so mean, but God can use, or that thing that's going on is so terrible. And, and I have to say, I mean, we've been through a time of exile. I mean, our, the pandemic was a form of exile. And it depended on how you treated it or how, how you worked it or how God worked it in your life. I know people that have not recovered and they, they're still in exile and they, they need to be set free from that. And the second one is that God can use a time of exile to prepare us for his plan that is ahead. Very, very clear in, in this area of scripture. God will stir up his people to work together in rebuilding. There's a lot of need for rebuilding in our nation. I read now a lot about churches that are just shutting down. They're just shutting down. They're not going to try anymore. And I hear about pastors who are retiring early. They're just saying, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit. And there's a huge amount of rebuilding. And the people that need to come in and support and be a part of that rebuilding, it's very, very significant. And so we need to pray that God will stir us in that. God can restore the things that have been stolen from us. You know, you may, you may come and say, you know, there are things that have been stolen from me. And God can restore the things that have been stolen. They may not be exactly the same, but God can re- bring restoration when there are things that have been stolen. But the most important is this one that we really treasure That God knows the plans he has for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So the question of the weekend as we begin a study. I pray that you'll be here. We're going to work through and walk through word of God in this process of restoration. 
But have you experienced destruction? I talk to people and they say, sometimes they say, I destroyed my life. And I know that I did that. And I don't know where to go from here. God still has his heart for you. God is restoring. Others will say that things beyond their control destroyed. There's destruction in their life. God has a plan for you. He knows the plans he has for you. And some will say, well, you know, these things have happened and I don't know where to turn. Have you been in an exile? Uh, God uses exile. It can be our intensive education. And sometimes we've been away from the plan of God and we really, really need uh, to draw near to him in order to come out of that exile. Is God stirring you up to rebuild? There's a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done. We can't just float off and stay in Babylon, okay? And maybe there's someone in your life who needs to hear the good news that God still has a plan for them. Let's look at it once again. Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's read this out loud together. Now, it's, it's God speaking, but let's read it out loud together. Ready? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God, we thank you so much that you always know the plans that you have. And even when things appear to be derailed, you know exactly what you are doing. You know exactly where you are seeking to get us. And these are plans for welfare, not for evil. God, we thank you for that. Lord, may we Find that truth more and more each day, each week as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.